The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. The House will return Tuesday and stay in session through Thursday. This week in the House, the House will return on Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up seven bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House is scheduled to begin consideration of H.R. 4365. That's the Fiscal Year 2024 Department of Defense Appropriations Bill. On Thursday, the House will conclude its consideration of the Defense Approach Bill for FY24. Then the House is scheduled to take up H.R. 1435, the Preserving Choice in Vehicles Purchases Act. That's a bill to amend the Clean Air Act to prevent the elimination of the sale of internal combustion engines. Last week in the Senate, the Senate returned on Tuesday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Philip Nathan Jefferson to be vice chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Gwynne A. Wilcox to be a member of the National Labor Relations Board. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Lisa Donnell Cook to be a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Adriana Deborah Kugler to be a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Anna M. Gomez to be a member of the Federal Communications Commission. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Tanya J. Bradshaw to be Deputy Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate the Senate will take up the nomination of Jeffrey Irvine Cummings to be United States District Judge for the Northern District of Illinois. And then the Senate will take up a motion to proceed to H.R. 4366, the FY24 Military Construction Veterans Affairs Appropriations Bill, which will have been combined with the Agriculture and Transportation Housing Urban Development Appropriations Bills to create a minibus. Now to the Iran nuclear deal update. Over the final weekend of August, startling news broke in Iran. The Tehran Times, an organ of the hardliners in Iran, published a report it said was based on an April letter sent by the State Department to former Biden administration envoy Robert Malley. According to the letter, government investigators, quote, received information regarding you that raises serious security concerns and can be disqualifying under top secret security guidelines. Your national security eligibility, including your top secret security clearance, is suspended pending an ongoing investigation, continues the letter. The State Department refused to comment on the purported letter's authenticity. Former State Department officials said it looked genuine. This report is important for multiple reasons. First, if the letter is real, it means Malley lied to the media when, in May, he told them he was unaware why his security clearance had been suspended. Second, if the letter is real, how in the world did the Tehran Times get its hands on it? House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall said that the State Department, quote, needs to do a top-to-bottom security review because I'm concerned they have a leak. Indeed. Republican Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, went one step further, calling on the State Department Inspector General to investigate 
how the Tehran Times got the letter. Now the latest on illegal immigration. The thing about chickens is they come home to roost. Democrats are finding this out the hard way. After years of big cities and blue states declaring themselves sanctuaries where illegal immigrants can live safe in the knowledge that state and local law enforcement authorities will not cooperate with federal law enforcement and, not coincidentally, becoming home to large populations of illegal immigrants, these Democrat big city mayors and blue state governors are freaking out about the mess they've created. The result? They've lined up in a circular firing squad, and they're now all pointing fingers at each other. Mayors are demanding help from their governors. Governors are mad at the Biden administration, and the Biden administration just doesn't know what to do. On August 8th, Massachusetts Governor Mara Healey declared a state of emergency in the Bay State, quote, due to rapidly rising numbers of migrant families arriving in Massachusetts in need of shelter and services, unquote, as a result of the recent arrival of, quote, more than 20,000 individuals in state shelter, including children and pregnant women, unquote. On August 24, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said, quote, This crisis originated with the federal government, and it must be resolved with the federal government, end quote. Then she revealed that she had sent her demands to President Biden in a letter. One week later, on August 31, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy rejected any plans to help neighboring New York handle the surge of illegal immigrants. Appearing on local TV, Murphy said, I don't see any scenario where we're going to be able to take in a program in Atlantic City or, frankly, elsewhere in the state. You need scale, enormous amount of federal support, resources that go beyond anything that we can afford. Then, last Wednesday, at a town hall meeting in Manhattan, New York City Mayor Eric Adams laid it out. Quote, I'm going to tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I didn't see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City, destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month, he continued. One time we were just getting Venezuela. Now we're getting Ecuador. Now we're getting Russian-speaking coming through Mexico. We've gotten Western Africa. Now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. On Saturday, Mayor Adams upped the ante. Quote, While our compassion is limitless, our resources are not. We have not received substantial support from the Fed or state governments to handle these costs or change the course of this crisis. The simple truth is that longtime New Yorkers and asylum seekers will feel these potential cuts, and they will hurt. They're not potential cuts. They're very real cuts, and they're going to be serious. Some departments are going to see budget cuts of up to 15%. Some people are going to lose their jobs. Others are going to lose the benefits they count on. This disaster is the inevitable consequence of a policy decision made in Washington by elected officials and their appointed underlings who deliberately chose to ignore their oaths of office in pursuit of an open borders agenda with all that entails. Loss of sovereignty, reduced respect for the rule of law, increased social and governmental costs, higher crime, enhanced social disintegration, and the like. It was a political decision made by political people. They wanted the glamorous headlines touting their actions to reverse the policies of the previous administration, no matter what the consequences might be. They got the headlines they wanted, and they got the disaster we predicted. The U.S. deficit explodes.
As official Washington came back from its August recess and prepared to take up the spending fight with just weeks to go before the end of the fiscal year and the prospect of a government shutdown, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget put out a new analysis that ticked off just about everyone in official Washington. It ticked them off because it said that the U.S. government's deficit was projected to roughly double this year compared to last year, largely because of higher interest rates and lower tax revenues. According to the organization, the deficit this year will total about $2 trillion. Higher Social Security and Medicare costs, because of higher cost of living adjustments, because of higher inflation, will combine with higher interest costs, also because of higher inflation, and higher education spending, higher veterans benefits spending, higher health care spending, and the infrastructure law, along with the president's climate bill, to jack up spending while lower-than-anticipated tax receipts means less money flowing in. But don't be misled. This is not a revenue problem. This is a spending problem. From August of 2022 to July of 2023, the federal government spent roughly $6.7 trillion, but only brought in about $4.5 trillion. That represents a total spending increase of 16% relative to last year against a 7% decrease in revenue. Now to that spending fight. The House is finally back in session this week for the first time since July. The two chambers will be in session for three or four days a week for the next three weeks, leading up to the end of the fiscal year on September 30. That will give the House and Senate a total of 11 days in session to find a way to fund the government for the next fiscal year, which begins on October 1. Let's review just for a moment. To fund the government, the House and Senate must pass, and the President must sign, 12 appropriations bills to fund the various departments and agencies of the government. The House has passed precisely one of those 12 bills, and deserves congratulations for that Herculean effort, because the Senate has passed precisely zero of its 12 appropriations bills. Sadly, this is not unusual. This is, in fact, a repeat of what we see year after year. Neither House succeeds in passing all of its necessary appropriations bills on time, and the government cannot remain open and functioning without legal authority to do so, so the leaders in both houses give themselves an out, additional time to get their work done, by passing what's called a continuing resolution. As its name implies, a continuing resolution is a resolution that basically says, for the duration of this resolution, we will continue spending in the next fiscal year what we were spending in the last fiscal year. Same programs, same bureaucrats, same funding levels. And we will continue spending at the same level until we pass new appropriations bills that better reflect our current priorities. And then then they use that additional time to pass the 12 spending bills through each house and then go to a conference committee on each of the 12 bills to reconcile the differences, right? Wrong. Don't be silly. That would require much too much work and much too much time. So, instead, the leaders will use that time to get together and negotiate to put all 12 bills into one giant bill. They call it an omnibus. Sometimes they put just a few of the bills together into one bill. And because they just can't help themselves, they call that a minibus. An omnibus bill is typically several thousand pages long, and there's not a single person on the planet who can read the entire bill because it's so long and dense. And to the leaders of both parties and both chambers, that's a feature, not a bug. It's a feature and not a bug because it allows them to slip all kinds of unbelievable junk into these spending bills, junk that would never survive inspection under the light of day.
but jammed into a 3,000-page bill released at 11 p.m. with instructions from the leadership that the chamber will be voting on the bill at 1 a.m. on the night after next, that is 26 hours later, but cleverly spanning three days on the calendar, it works magically. So the good news about a continuing resolution is that the spending levels are all set. There's no argument between the two parties or between the two chambers because part of the agreement between the two parties is that the spending levels are already set. They were set a year earlier when the spending bills for, in this case, fiscal year 2023 were enacted. The bad news about a continuing resolution is that the spending levels were set a year earlier by a different Congress. In this case, the spending levels for FY 2023 were set by a Congress that had a Democrat majority in the House and a Democrat majority in the Senate. If we were to continue to spend at those levels, it would be as if the 2022 elections had not taken place and Republicans had not taken the majority in the House. So that's the background for what's going to happen this week. Congress is now back in September. Neither of the two houses has passed its 12 appropriations bills, so it sure looks like a continuing resolution will be necessary to keep the government open into October and November, while the two parties and the two chambers negotiate over spending levels for fiscal year 2024. Conservatives in the House don't like this prospect. They're determined to stand athwart history yelling, stop. On Monday, August 21, the House Freedom Caucus released a statement on its view of a continuing resolution. Quote, In the eventuality that Congress must consider a short-term extension of government funding through a continuing resolution, we refuse to support any such measure that continues Democrats' bloated COVID-era spending and simultaneously fails to force the Biden administration to follow the law and fulfill its most basic responsibilities. Any support for a clean continuing resolution would be an affirmation of the current FY 2023 spending level grossly increased by the lame duck December 22 omnibus spending bill that we all vehemently opposed just seven months ago. Then they continued by declaring they would oppose any spending bill that does not include the House passed Secure the Border Act of 2023 that does not address the unprecedented weaponization of the Justice Department and FBI, and that does not end the left's cancerous woke policies in the Pentagon. Now, there are about three dozen members of the House Freedom Caucus. In order for the HFC to take an official position, the group's rules say 80% of their members must agree. If my math is correct, that means at least 28 House Republicans have said they will vote against any CR that does not include those three conditions. Three conditions which might or might not earn majority support in the House, but would very likely not achieve majority support in the Democrat-majority Senate. Speaker McCarthy has not really responded to this declaration by the HFC. He could decide to push through a bill that meets the conservatives' demands and send it over to the Senate, where it likely wouldn't even get a vote, or he might not. He could decide to put together a continuing resolution that does not contain language meeting the conservatives' demands and dare them to vote against it. Now, there's one more thing to keep in mind as background, and that is the Senate Appropriations Committee passed all 12 of its appropriations bills on a bipartisan basis in the committee. Several of those bills, in fact, came out with unanimous support. The House Appropriations Committee, on the other hand, had no such luck. 
because the House Republican leadership, under pressure from conservatives, decided to spend less on each of its spending bills than had been agreed to in the debt limit deal back in the spring, the Democrats on the committee wouldn't vote for the bills. So they all passed solely on the basis of GOP support. That means the Senate Democrat leadership is likely going to have an easier time passing its bills through the full Senate than will the House Republican leadership in passing its bills through the full House. The Senate only needs to get 60 votes to agree to proceed to consideration of any spending bill. There are 14 Republicans on the Senate Appropriations Committee. That's enough Republicans right there on the Appropriations Committee that if they all decided to vote to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed, they could vote with all the Democrats to do so, and the rest of the Republicans in the Senate wouldn't be able to do anything about it. The Senate is not waiting around. They've got their own plans over there. Majority Leader Schumer plans to take three of those bipartisan bills, the FY24 Military Construction Veterans Affairs, Agriculture and Transportation HUD bills, and put them all together into a minibus bill he can put on the floor today. Each of these bills passed the committee unanimously. I imagine it's going to take up the better part of this week and next week to work their way through all the amendments, but they'll likely be voting to pass this first big spending bill by the end of next week. The House, by contrast, is going to go right at the big kahuna, the DOD appropriations bill, the biggest of all the 12 appropriations bills. On June 22, the House committee passed its draft bill, setting spending for FY24 at $826.45 billion. As the committee noted at the time, that's $285.7 million over President Biden's budget request and $28.71 billion, or 3.6% over the FY23 enacted level. The House GOP leadership and the House Freedom Caucus members went over about 300 potential amendments to the DOD approach bill last Thursday. Now, if all goes as planned, the House will take up the Homeland Security and Foreign Operations Appropriations bills the following week, if House Republicans can agree on spending levels, which they haven't done yet. For example, the Foreign Ops bill has had its spending level cut back all the way to the FY16 level. But some conservatives still don't think that's enough of a cut. But wait, we're not done yet because we haven't talked about President Biden's request for a supplemental spending bill. Several weeks ago, he asked Congress for $40 billion in additional emergency spending. He wants to devote another $24 billion to Ukraine, $12 billion to disaster relief, and $4 billion to border security. The Senate doesn't seem to have any problem with this at all. They're ready to tack that onto the CR and pass it all in one fell swoop. But many House Republicans have a problem with spending more money on Ukraine. Back in the spring, the last time we had votes on spending U.S. taxpayer dollars to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia's aggression, about a third of the Republicans in the House voted against it, 70 out of 222. Now, that's nowhere near a majority, or even half, but a third is not an insignificant number, so Speaker McCarthy has to be mindful of that, because his margin of control is so small that, remember, he can only afford four defections on any single vote. Apparently, he's decided to split the supplemental spending request. The latest reporting says he wants to break off the Ukraine portion of the spending bill and instead take the disaster relief and border security funds 
and add them to the expected continuing resolution. Then he'll pass that bill and send it over to the Senate and then hope to use the president's desire to get Ukraine funding as McCarthy's leverage to get additional border security funding and policy changes in a separate supplemental spending bill. Of course, once he sends the, C over, the CR over to the Senate without the Ukraine funding, they could add it in and then send it back to him. And then what does he do? Stay tuned. Peter Navarro was convicted of contempt of Congress last Thursday for lying, I'm sorry, for defying a congressional subpoena and refusing to cooperate with the January 6th committee. Navarro had claimed that he couldn't cooperate because former President Trump had claimed executive privilege. The judge refused to allow that defense. And once that happened, said Navarro, the die was cast. Navarro becomes the second former Trump White House official to be convicted of contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the January 6th committee. Steve Bannon was convicted on two counts and was sentenced to four months in prison. He's free while his appeal is pending. Navarro has pledged to appeal his ruling. No mask mandates. Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene on Friday introduced legislation that would prevent the federal government from reviving mask mandates on airplanes, public transit, or in schools. The proposed legislation also prohibits commercial airlines, public transit authorities, and educational institutions from denying services to anyone who does not want to wear a mask. The legislation is called the Freedom to Breathe Act. Now to the latest update on the Biden crime family saga. On Saturday, August 19, two bombshell stories appeared in the political media, the New York Times and Politico. They went behind the scenes to give readers an inside look at the long-running discussions between Hunter Biden's legal team and the Department of Justice attorneys assigned to his case and the construction and then disintegration of that sweet plea deal. Based on a massive leak of hundreds of pages of documents and emails, the two pieces painted a story of a DOJ that apparently did not want to prosecute Hunter for anything, even as the clock was expiring on statutes of limitations regarding serious tax charges. Further, the two articles revealed that the attorney Hunter hired, Chris Clark, was particularly aggressive in Hunter's defense, so aggressive with the DOJ attorneys he dealt with that he actually threatened to create a constitutional crisis by putting the sitting president of the United States on the stand as a fact witness to defend his client, which would have meant that the president was serving as a witness against prosecutors under his own command. No one but the reporters and editors involved in producing these two stories knows who was the source of the leaks. But if I had to bet, I'd bet the leaks came from Hunter's attorney, Chris Clark, who has now left Hunter's legal team. The two stories together paint a picture of Clark and his legal team browbeating and threatening DOJ attorneys to get better treatment for his client. At one point, for instance, he told DOJ attorneys that bringing charges against Hunter would lead to what he called career suicide for the DOJ attorneys involved. And who knows? He may have been right. It makes as much sense as any other theory when you're trying to figure out how DOJ attorneys, who had the evidence we've been told about by the two IRS whistleblowers, nevertheless failed to charge felony tax evasion against Hunter. On Monday, August 21, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan and House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith 
subpoenaed four investigators from the IRS and the FBI who were involved in the investigation of Hunter Biden. The four officials were either present at or knew of the October 7, 2022 meeting referenced by IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley in his testimony to the Ways and Means Committee, in which Shapley testified that U.S. Attorney David Weiss had told Shapley and his colleagues that he, Weiss, did not have ultimate charging authority in the case and had been denied when he asked his superiors for special counsel status. Weiss, who has now been appointed special counsel, has denied that he ever said that. Jordan and Smith want to hear from these four officials, three of whom were in the room for the meeting, and one of whom heard from Shapley about the meeting later the same day. On Saturday, August 26th, former Ukrainian Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin, the guy who got fired after then-Vice President Joe Biden demanded his ouster as a condition of delivering a billion dollars in U.S. financial assistance to Ukraine, said in a blockbuster interview on Fox News that he believed the Biden's father and son had been bribed. Quote, I do not want to deal in unproven facts, but my firm personal conviction is that, yes, this was the case. They were being bribed. And the fact that Joe Biden gave away $1 billion in U.S. money in exchange for my dismissal, my firing, isn't that alone a case of corruption? He added. Further, Shokin claimed that Hunter Biden had been brought on board at Burisma to provide protection for the company. Quote, I have no doubt there were illegal activities engaged in by Burisma. It continued to expand, and Burisma owner Mikola Zlochevsky, who at the time held the post of minister, started bringing in people who could provide protection for him. Hunter Biden was among them, and the corruption network expanded as a result. End quote. On Sunday, August 27, Speaker Kevin McCarthy appeared on Fox News and said, If you look at all the information we've been able to gather so far, it is a natural step forward that you would have to go to an impeachment inquiry. And just so your viewers understand what that means, that provides Congress the apex of legal power to get all the information they need. But now, when you look at this, it looks like a culture of corruption that's been happening within the entire Biden family, end quote. Then on Monday, August 28, we learned of a new twist. We learned that as vice president, Joe Biden had used emails with aliases. In response to a Freedom of Information Act request from the Southeastern Legal Foundation, June of 2022, the National Archives and Records Administration acknowledged that it has 5,400 emails or other documents that were responsive to a request for emails using three different aliases for Biden. J.R.B. Ware, Robert L. Peters, and Robin Ware. But the National Archives doesn't want to hand over the emails in response to the FOIA request, so the legal group sued NARA. On Wednesday, House Oversight and Accountability Chairman James Comer of Kentucky told the National Archives that he wanted access to the unredacted emails from Biden Services Vice President, and NARA officials indicated they were going to seek approval from Biden and Biden's former boss, Barack Obama, before handing over all the emails Comer wants. Comer may end up having to subpoena and even sue NARA. We actually first learned of the alias emails from Hunter's laptop in 2021, when Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson first requested them from NARA. They're still waiting. NARA obviously does not want to hand over these emails, which only serves to heighten interest in them. One of the emails we do know about is, in Comer's word, concerning. 
It's an email exchange from December 4, 2015, between Hunter Biden's business associate, Eric Schwerin, and Kate Bedingfield, the communications director for Vice President Biden. Schwerin emailed her that morning to suggest talking points for the VP's office to respond to a New York Times story about Hunter's business activities in Ukraine. Bedingfield responded at 2.30 p.m. that afternoon that the vice president had signed off on this. So one of Hunter's business associates was working with the VP's office to shape the VP's response to a media inquiry about Hunter's activities in Ukraine. So much for never discussing his son's business activities. And here's another. The Washington Times reported in July that, quote, a White House scheduling email sent to then-Vice President Joseph R. Biden ahead of a call with Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko was also sent to his son Hunter, who was serving on the board of a Ukrainian energy firm looking to escape a corruption probe, end quote. The email was sent to then-Vice President Biden at his Robert L. Peters email alias. The email was also copied to his son. Why would Hunter be copied on a scheduling email that noted his father would be calling the Ukrainian president has not been explained. But it puts the lie to any claim that there was a wall of separation between Joe and his son Hunter's business activities. We'll keep an eye on Comer and his hunt for Biden alias emails. Meanwhile, elsewhere in recent weeks, new game-changing evidence of Joe Biden's corruption has emerged. The evidence raises serious questions about the entire narrative of Biden's December 2015 visit to Kiev. That's when he says he used the threat of blocking a billion dollars in U.S.-backed loan guarantees to pressure the Ukrainian government to remove the nation's prosecutor general, Viktor Shokin, who was investigating the corrupt Ukrainian energy company on whose board sat Biden's son, Hunter. We were told that Biden's move to oust Shokin was the aim of U.S. policy in Ukraine at the time. But the new evidence calls that assertion into question and casts that maneuver in a far different light. It appears that rather than executing U.S. policy, Biden's move to remove Shokin was an extracurricular event, an audible, unforeseen by and surprising to an interagency task force of bureaucrats from the state, treasury, and justice departments, among others. That Biden claims to have leveraged the loan guarantee to get what he wanted is indisputable. He famously acknowledged his demand for the quid pro quo in a January 23, 2018 appearance before the Council on Foreign Relations. Quote, I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here, and I, I think it was about six hours. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bee, he got fired. When the episode became an issue during the first impeachment of former President Donald Trump, Biden explained it away, claiming the prosecutor general was corrupt and his ouster was an acknowledged goal of U.S. policy in Ukraine. Contemporaneous emails and memos released last month by Just the News show Biden was lying. In fact, those emails show that senior U.S. government officials believe the prosecutor general had made so much progress on cleaning up corruption that it warranted a reward of a billion dollars in new U.S. loan guarantees. Stop and think about that for a moment. Joe Biden had a billion dollars in loan guarantees in his back pocket because an interagency task force of the U.S. government had come to the conclusion that Ukraine's progress on fighting corruption was so significant in warranted new U.S. assistance. 
So when Biden called the audible on his own and pivoted in Kyiv to leverage the billion-dollar loan guarantee to see if he could get the prosecutor general fired, U.S. government officials back home were taken by surprise. Buckle up, wrote the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine to the rest of the interagency working group. Yikes, responded a CIA officer detailed to the National Security Council staff. So much for that narrative. Stay tuned. Now, can the 14th Amendment bar Donald Trump? On Monday, August 14, two law professors posted a law review article arguing that former President Trump was barred from ever holding federal office again because of the language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. That language reads as follows, quote, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, end quote. Five days later, Former Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge J. Michael Ludig and Harvard Law Professor Lawrence H. Tribe published an article in The Atlantic entitled, The Constitution Bars Trump from Ever Being President Again, the title of which accurately states the article's argument. Predictably, the left and the media went nuts, and I probably would have left it alone to be discussed on talk shows on MSNBC and among the women of The View if it hadn't been for the fact that on Thursday, August 24, a Florida lawyer by the name of Lawrence Kaplan filed a lawsuit in the Federal District Court for the Southern District of Florida, quote, seeking declaratory relief on the specific issue of whether candidate Donald J. Trump is indeed constitutionally prohibited from seeking a second term as president of the United States, unquote, based on the allegation that he participated in what Kaplan calls an overt rebellion and or insurrection against the U.S. government on January 6th. Kaplan's lawsuit says that Trump was in place on, that what took place on January 6th was an insurrection and argued that Trump was involved and therefore Trump is disqualified from serving as president. And since he's disqualified from serving as president, he should be barred from participating in the Florida Republican presidential primary in the spring of 2024. Kaplan specifically noted that Trump hasn't been convicted by any court on any charge of insurrection. In fact, not only has Trump not been convicted of insurrection, he hasn't even been charged with insurrection or even inciting insurrection. Kaplan nevertheless argued that because the January 6th riot took place and Trump was somewhere close by, he should be barred from seeking office again under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Federal District Judge Robin L. Rosenberg, an Obama appointee, disagreed. He ruled a week ago that lawyer Kaplan did not have a specific legal injury and therefore did not have standing to sue. Quote, plaintiffs lack standing to challenge defendants' qualifications for seeking the presidency as the injuries alleged are not cognizable and not particular to them, wrote Rosenberg. And that was that, at least in Florida. But we're not done with this nefarious argument. Last Wednesday in Colorado, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a left-wing group, filed a similar lawsuit seeking to disqualify Trump from the ballot in Colorado. 
Now, here's the problem with this lawsuit and with any others that may come forward or any blue state secretaries of state who might try to keep Trump off their ballots unilaterally. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not apply to Trump for several reasons. First, no one in any position of authority has concluded that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection because it wasn't. Second, no one in any position of authority has concluded that Trump had anything to do with what happened on January 6th in legal terms. The Department of Justice has been prosecuting people for quite some time on this subject, and in not a single one of those cases did they cite Trump's actions. Nor did the Department of Justice's special counsel choose to indict Trump for insurrection or even incitement to insurrection when he decided to charge Trump for multiple crimes he says Trump committed after November 2020. Now, here's my favorite point of all. Even if any or all of those things about Trump were not true, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment still would not apply to Trump because the president is not mentioned in the wording of the 14th Amendment. The authors of the 14th Amendment specifically mentioned senators and representatives and members of the Electoral College and officers, both civil and military, but did not name president. Was that an oversight? Hardly. Mark Levin has an excellent piece on this aspect of this ridiculous assignment. You can find it in the suggested reading. Former Attorney General Michael Mukasey takes the point even farther, arguing that the language of the constitutional provision in question applies to officers of the United States, and then points out that the Supreme Court has ruled in several cases that the president is not an officer of the United States, and therefore the provision does not apply to Trump because he does not meet the qualifications for inclusion in the prohibition no matter what he did. Again, you can find that piece in the suggested reading. Now again to the latest on the Trump indictments. On Monday, August 14, Fannie Willis, the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, unsealed indictments against former President Trump and 18 of his allies, charging them with conspiring to overthrow the results of the 2020 election. Trump faces 13 felony charges, including conspiracy to commit forgery, filing false documents, solicitation of violation of oath by public officer, and violating the Georgia Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, also known as the RICO Act. Other defendants named in the 98-page indictment include former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former Trump attorneys Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, and Jenna Ellis, former Georgia Republican Party Chairman David Schaefer, and former Georgia lawyer Ray Smith. The indictment says Trump and the other defendants charged in this indictment refused to accept that Trump lost, and they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. That conspiracy contained a common plan and purpose to commit two or more acts of racketeering activity in Fulton County, Georgia, elsewhere in the state of Georgia, and in other states." End quote. The Trump campaign put out a statement in response to the indictment charging that the timing of the indictment, coming after two and a half years of investigation, just as the 2024 Republican presidential primary is kicking into high gear, constitute a grave threat to American democracy and our direct attempts to deprive the American people of their rightful choice to cast their vote for president. Call it election interference or election manipulation. It is a dangerous effort by the ruling class to suppress the choice of the people. It is un-American and wrong, the statement concluded. Now, here's the problem with this latest indictment of Trump. Though the indictment charges Trump and 18 Confederates with conspiracy, the indictment names no actual crime 
The indictment says specifically that, quote, Trump and the other defendants knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump, end quote. It is not illegal to attempt to change the outcome of the election, or Stacey Abrams would have been indicted for her actions following the 2018 gubernatorial contest in Georgia. Simply adding the word unlawfully to the indictment's description of the allegation does not make a lawful exercise into an unlawful one. On Thursday, August 24, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan sent a letter to the district attorney asking her if she had been in contact with Special Counsel Jack Smith regarding her indictment. Further, Jordan asked her for documents and records related to the case, as he has with earlier prosecutions of Trump. On Monday, August 28, Federal District Judge Tanya Chutkan ruled that former President Trump's trial on charges that he conspired to illegally overturn the results of the 2020 election, that is the federal trial, will begin on March 4, 2024, conveniently just one day before Super Tuesday, the biggest single day in the primary campaign season. So President Trump's trial for election interference will be in itself an act of election interference. Now, finally, to the latest episode of The Jenny Beth Show. The latest episode of The Jenny Beth Show dropped on Friday rather than the regular Wednesday because it's the second part of a two-part episode. Episodes 28 and 28, I'm sorry, 28 and 29 feature Jenny Beth's interview with Suzanne Guggenheim, one of my favorite people in the Tea Party movement. Suzanne is the Texas State Coordinator for Tea Party Patriots. Born on D-Day, June 6, 1944, Suzanne spent parts of her youth living under Nazi rule, a socialist government, and communism before eventually making her way to the United States. It's a fascinating conversation, and I highly recommended. And that's our Washington Report for this week.